Um, um, Hello. Hello. Who are you? I'm Gavin. Hi, Gavin. You've come into the science shed. Well, well, it's quite interesting because I've just been... um, just in London today. I've just been uh, looking at some very interesting um, curbs. I'm a big fan of curbs dating from the 1920s to the 1960s. I bet you're a fan of Byzantine churches as well, aren't you, Gavin? No, not really. No, just the curbs. What do you do for a living, Gavin? Um, I don't have a job currently. Okay. Well, Gavin, you've walked into the science shed. It's, oh. a, it's a podcast that happens every two weeks with two university academics. Oh, right. A podca- I have come across podcasts. Yeah. How, how, would I, how would I go about listening to them on a regular basis? Well, if you have a smartphone, Gavin, you can just download it directly onto your smartphone. Oh, I do, There's, actually. I'm a, my name's Stephen Lee. I'm a uh, f- uh, physical chemist. Who's that chap over there doing the tea? That, that is Nick Evans. He's oh, a bioengineer from the University of Southampton. Um, I tell you what, normally what happens is we just have a bit of a chat right. about things we found interesting that are science-related. Great, well, yeah, I'm a fan of science. Yeah? Yeah, especially if there's we, any we interesting uh, curbside curb. conversations. Concrete. Do you know what? We haven't had any conversations about curbs, but we can, just for you. Would okay. you like to listen? Yeah, I'd love it. All right, sit there. Great. Bunsen, Dolly, Internal, Combustion. Why Do We Need, Petri, Oscar, Bay. Isaac, Transplanting. Nick. Hello, Steve. How are you doing? I'm all right. It's still a bomb site in your flat, by the way. I quite like it. I don't care that you've got Shoreditch radiators. They're cool, though, aren't they? Well, they're all right. They're, gun, they're kind of gunmetal grey. They're called anthracite. Is the colour now? Anthracite grey. Yeah, so we're, we're podcasting from... That's coal, anthracite. That's right, yeah. So they're coal grey radiators. They're very much like the sort of radiators that you might find in Nathan Barley's flat. And Steve's getting rid of the old ones and doing some plumbing. And basically his whole flat is like a bombsite. Regular listeners will remember, last time we recorded, I was sitting on a bucket because yeah. Steve didn't have a chair. He thinks that a chair is one step of luxury too far. This right. week, he's given in to convention for modern society, and I'm sitting on a like stool. A, I feel like a failure, Nick. <laughs> I'm so comfortable. No, we're today from my... I'm so comfortable on my <laughs> stool. I'm so grateful that I didn't have to sit on a deformed bucket when I come to your house. <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with a bucket. Next step, you'll get an electric kettle, and then I'll be happy. Well, there's no point buying a nice kettle, because I'll just ruin it with all of the reverb. You're not in the f***ing <laughs> 1920s. <laughs> I just, like, like I... What? Well, it's like a kettle. It's like an old school thing, isn't it? To have a kettle on the hob that starts whistling at you when it's ready. Why are you some kettle Nazi? (laughs) Anyway, thanks, Steve, for hosting the podcast today. It's really nice to be back in your flat. I've got a few stories to talk about today. Got some sciencey stories. Yeah, little nuggets. Well, um, should we get on with it? Let's sit back, buckle up, and get in for the ride. Steve, Nick, would you say you're a thug? Thug, uh, hope not. Um, would you say you're a data thug? Ooh, what's a data thug? <laughs> Probably. I only found out what a data thug was. Is this, this some week. new word that only millennials use on BuzzFeed? Um, I think it's a bit more niche than that. Okay. I think it's a bit more sciencey. Do you know what a hype beast is? No. That's a term for like people that. Um, uh, there's like a whole subculture of people that really value material possessions. 
yeah. over um, like things. Materialist so, people, I would no, call No, no, no. But the, um, <laughs> so people that would spend, you know, a thousand pounds on a pair of shoes and they get really into like bag, like Louis Vuitton bags and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, the newest Nike book. But uh, shoe that's coming out. Yeah, materialist people. No, but they're not just people that just like. It's specifically people that spend that don't have that much money and spend it all on stuff that they like like to wear. And what are they called? Hype beasts. So a hype beast is someone who spends all their money on a particular item of. Clothing. And then goes back. It's very kind of happens in London a lot. They go back to a tiny little flat that they because they spent all their money on shoes and with like bags. A, mat, a, mat, a pair of gold slippers. Exactly. And nothing else in the room. Exactly just right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not just a materialist that has a big house and is rich. They're, they're, they're specifically choosing to reduce other areas in their life because they really like the. It sounds like there. I've got a friend and he has an obsession with trainers and he's got like hundreds yeah. of pairs of like Adidas trainers. So, so it's evolved from just things people do and it's like a whole community of people and they like share information and you know you, and social media and things anyway tell me about uh, data thug yeah so i hadn't come across the data thug before i so data thugs apparently are they seem like um very um finicky pedant. Pure, pedant, pedantic <sighs> puritanical people about, about but they specifically well they they're trying to uncover fraud in literature academic literature Ooh. so a data thug is someone who goes basically mining other people's papers and checking for obvious fraud or mistakes yeah so okay but is this a is this a is this a, um, a kind of a useful thing to try and find mistakes or is it actually people actively being nefarious trying to cheat the system and publishing when they shouldn't and all these things well they're trying to expose the people who are so the naughty people they're, they're trying they're to ex- sort of trying to expose the naughty people right. but also sort of uncovering you know, slapdash or rubbish stuff right. along the way. Well, uh, so it started, there was a couple of guys, I, I mean, I just happened to come across this while while reading um, Science Magazine. Right. You know, the the, the periodical journal yes. in America usually publishes a lot of very serious, wonderful literature. Yes, Except serious. it's not so, it's more like this. Hello. Yeah, we're going to publish I wrote a, a paper on for, a bear's uh, Science this week. You what? I wrote a, a news and views for science. Did this you week. really? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, well, I haven't yeah. seen that. I'll have to have a look. Um, but anyway, so this guy, he came across um, some papers. There's a guy in France called Nicolas Guéguer. Guéguer. That is Guéguen. such a French name. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. It's G-U-E-G-U-E-N. Guéguer. I bet he's got a really nice flat. Loads of like designer furniture. He's a psychologist and he right. publishes lots of wacky papers. Okay. Like wacky like what? Like, you know, women with large breasts are more likely to get... Um, invitations to dance. Right. Um, so he just, he's just kind of... Blonde looking. waitresses get bigger tips. Seems very gender-skewed, right. his research. So his latest he's Pepe, one... Pepe Le Pew, basically. He published a paper in 2015 yeah. reporting that men are less likely to assist women who tie up their hair than women who have their hair flowing freely. Interesting. Okay. So he's one of these types of psychologists. Anyway, yeah. some other dude, a guy called uh, Nick Brown, he's a He's now a data thug. Right. I'm not sure whether he was called a data thug in 2015, but since then, this is what the term has, that has evolved. Yeah. So he sort of went through all of his stuff. And so called... I suppose we should say that it's very common in science now, and particularly even more so now, is that not only do you have to publish the, your results, what you find, but nearly always you have to give the data which led you to those conclusions. And historically, it was, it was a bit of a grey area. Some people did it, some people didn't. But all of the bits of information that have led you to believe you've understood something now 
uh, that's very common now. So people might upload you know, raw like spectrums or like you might do like gels or crystal structures and all these things that, that you, ha you have to actually give the data that allows you to, do, to determine the, the or prove your hypothesis. Yeah, if you're a scientist, you, you have to be totally transparent. That's Which is the, great, yeah. The, the short answer to that. But one of the things they do is they have this, this um, index called the GRIM index. Does it stand for something? It's an acronym, yeah. yeah. It stands for Granularity Related Inconsistency of Means. Right. Sounds impressive, right? Yeah. It's not that impressive. They just look, All at, they they do, look at the average. Well, they look pretty much. So what they do <laughs> is they look in papers and they look at the, the how many things have been measured. Yeah. Like, let's say, you know, the age of children. This is the... Yeah. So you have, let's say there's 12, they say they've measured the age of 12 children and the average yeah. age of the children is reported in the paper at 15.7. Yeah. What this does is it proves that that's actually impossible because there's no number divided by 12 that would give mm. you the answer of 15.7. So if you've seen a paper when someone has got an end, a particular number of things yeah. they've measured... Yeah. And they report an average value, a mean. An integer value, yeah, okay. That's then easy. it's not... Um, well, it's just not... This just means they're not cheating well. If you're going to cheat, you cheat properly, you know. But it just... I mean, you're not... If you're a cheaty, cheaty person, you, yeah. it's like in Colombo, right? It doesn't matter how <laughs> perfect the crime just is. one more thing. <laughs> it doesn't matter how perfect the crime is. Colombo, he's going to find He'll out... weasel it out. That it doesn't take two minutes to walk up those stairs on that cruise ship. Yeah. It takes... 55 seconds and if you did walk up you would have seen in that the period of time your heart would be beating much more quickly <laughs> yeah. than what was measured in the medical record yeah. so there's always a way so, you, so basically he, he they use techniques like this to data columbos basically and there's loads of them at the moment. there's another one so has he, has he exposed the the guang oh guang? Guang, yeah is all of them got re like retracted and there's loads of examples you can uh, i don't have the the other one to God, have. I bet it doesn't make you very popular, does it? You're just going around no, trying no, to disprove really, everyone's research from really 20 years unpopular. ago. Well, this is the, this is this is how Science Magazine describes the two data thugs that they were talking about yeah. in the article. One of which, one of them's called Nick Brown, the other one's called James Heathers, and the two are student science section. The two are temperamental opposites. Whereas Brown does not consider himself a crusader and has no trace of the swashbuckler, the Australian-born Heathers, 35, revels in acting like a dinner guest who farts loudly and unapologetically <laughs> during grace. Like you. And he appears constitutionally unable to accept authority. Like you. It's Shut you. Up. Is it you? <laughs> I always do what I'm told. I'm so beaten down. Anyway, the other thing they do, this is quite interesting. So they've, 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 they've kind of exposed a few papers, and one, one which I thought was quite funny as well. They've, they've got another technique, which is another acronym called Sprite. I'm not going to bore you with what it stands for. Okay. But it just enables um, you so to derive. It just enables you to derive statistically possible data sets, apparently. Right. And they showed that in a particular study, which was looking at um, carrot consumption in kids. Yeah. They found they they would have one of the children in the study would have literally have to have eaten sixty carrots in one sitting in one meal. Sixty carrots. Right. So. Um, they all, always give the author a chance to rebut. The, so they yeah. came up with some kind of really meandering rebuttal. <laughs> where actually said, well, actually, no, what we did, they were matchstick carrots. And four, four matchstick carrots are equivalent to one baby carrot. <laughs> but I think these, are, I don't know, these, these kinds of people, I probably wouldn't like them very much. If you met Sorry, them Sorry, guys. Pub, I don't know. I'm, I've never met one. Because hmm. they spend all their time just mining through the data and trying to call people out. 
But yeah. by the same token, I'm really we glad need them. they exist. I totally agree. Yeah, they're wicked because kind of policing the 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 <coughs> literature. There's a lot of naughty people. I reckon there's you know there's there's a lot of naughty people. There is there. a lot of naughty people. I'll give you that. Yeah, I suppose it's kind of interesting. I wonder if um, all I mean all I mean, the, f- the most famous cases of of uh, Hendrik Shin. Uh, who uh, was a uh, physicist who wrote lots and lots of papers, um, really high-profile science and nature. At some point, he was publishing like three, two papers a month or something. Um, and he was found out to be a complete fraud, just like making all the data up. And he got caught because he published the same figure on two different papers. Meaning two different things. Meaning two different things. <laughs> exactly, the same, exactly the same graph. It just goes to show how crap people are that review things as well yeah they don't he got caught because the noise was exactly like if you took the, like they had this moment where you take the two like graphs and you overlay them and like one was about capacitance versus current and you know something right and and they were exactly the same so you just changed different. what he just changed the axes <laughs> why is it in i'm gonna try that on my next paper <laughs> nick what you got for me oh steve so have you ever come across a competition called Bake Your PhD? Bake Your PhD? No, I haven't. I know there's Dance Your PhD. I've come across that before. Have you? Yeah. I haven't heard Dance Your PhD. Yeah, there's a Dance Your PhD and there's, um, there's an image, uh, like a picture of your PhD that people encourage. Um, right. But I've never, no, never come across a Bake Your PhD. So at my university um, the other day, they had a Bake Your PhD. Unfortunately, I was doing some other boring administrative tasks so I couldn't attend the Bake Your PhD, but my PhD student Anastasia joined so, in. So what's the the idea? It's pretty self-explanatory, but you know you want to try and like make a cake that has something to do with your science. Is that the idea? Yeah, you've got it in a nutshell, mate. Yeah, yeah you bake it. I think baking has. It's, it's, the, it's, it's a baking revolution. It's really been the whole world loves Bake Off. It's been a revival, hasn't there? Yeah, I don't know why. Mary Berry must be so happy with it. Do you reckon someone like um, who's that like? Like walk in the woods, man. That you like that's not Bear Grylls. Ray Mears. Do you reckon Ray Mears is just waiting for that to happen to him? Like, because Mary Berry's been around for years, and suddenly she's just like she's What's now. What's Ray now, Mears got to do with Mary Berry? Well, because because both of them been around for years. Yeah, waiting but Ray for Mears Red is Red. already quite a very popular and famous celebrity. But so was Mary Berry. She's been making cook- cookbooks for forty years, but now yeah, she's, she's not a national on tea celebrity. Telly. She's not been on telly before, really. Yeah, but she's a national celebrity now. She's like Ray she's, Mears she's, is already a celebrity. Don't not put as, down not, Ray Mears. He's not, my hero. Not as much as Mazza Baza. <laughs> Mary Berry is huge. She's she's nearly Attenborough level of love. People no, she's have. not. She has. People love her. Yeah, she's all right. Anyway, tell me about. Paper. I prefer the new one. I don't know. with Noel Fielding. I can't no, remember her name. No, she's less. I think Mary Berry sometimes a little bit, bit, bit horrible. Has sometimes? it still got the laser eye bar now in it? Do you mean the Orange Man? Paul, Paul, whatever. He's on. Yeah, he's in some different one. Yeah. I can't remember. Let, let, I can't remember <laughs> what, what's what or what, what day it is. But anyway, anyway Anastasia was in. Bake it. a PhD. She, she baked a cake, and she was up against stiff competition. Like what, about. Did she, how she do? She did a bubbles for bone cake. A bubbles for bone. So it's like a big kind of sponge cake. Yeah. Um, I pop, pop a picture up on. I've already popped a picture. Pop, <laughs> Peter Piper picked a pip. Sorry, everybody. We'll, we'll put this in the. Morning. We'll put this in the show notes. Anyway, so she baked a baked a cake and it had sort of bones and bubbles. She won. And do you yeah. know who the judge was? She won. Do you know who the judge was? Uh, Mary Berry. Shalina Permalu. Who's Shalina Perl? Like, th- what can I say? Permanent- that is a great name. It's so much more exciting than my Permaloo. name. Permaloo. It's like Portaloo, but permanent. A Permaloo. What's her, so what's her name again? 
Shalina Permalu. That, that person is going places. She was opinion. the uh, MasterChef winner ah. several years ago. And I think she's from Southampton. So right. she came to judge it. So, yeah. So Anastasia... So, so was, this, was this judged on how good the cake tasted or just how it looked? To I don't know. Okay. I think it was a combination of the cake baking, the yeah. look of it, the taste of it, and also the conversation. So Anastasia ah, had to do explain. a little, pre- little presentation. Yeah, she kind of, I think the judge walked around and they explained. But there were loads of different cakes. It was kind of one that was a, you would have liked. It was like a big ramen spectroscopy cake and it oh. had the colours of the rainbow and things shooting off it. Another student did one about um, biomaterials laponite with layer cake and little, cool. little cake, cell cakes. And there were some excellent ones there. It was, yeah. uh, so you've got a picture. Let's have a look. I'll show you. Here you go. Give me one second. So I'm just showing Steve a picture of Anastasia and her cake. There you go. Wow. It does look the look part, at that. So it? I'm looking at it. So first off, I haven't zoomed into the science on it, but it looks, it's a very well-made cake. It's very colourful. It's got bones on it, like a dog bone from a cartoon. And it's got little little balls on it. Little bubbles. Little bubbles, yeah. That's great. Oh, anyway, congratulations so to your PhD I think we student. should try and, we should, maybe we should try and bake our podcast. What would it look like? It'd be a big steaming pile of it would all be good, in, good intentions and badly executed. <laughs> That's what it would be. <laughs> Nick. Yeah, Steve. So I don't know whether you remember regular listeners. Regular Hello listeners. to all of you out there. The Shedlings. We love them all. We love you guys. Thanks for listening in. It's yeah. nice to have you with us. I know that we do have regular listeners. We do. And um, some of them tell us that they listen regularly, and that's, it's great. Uh, anyway, <laughs> have I brown-nosed our listeners enough? <laughs> Are you going to slag them off now? No, no, I love okay. our listeners. Okay. No, I don't. All I right. just feel well, uncomfortable like saying nice things to people. It's not in my nature. <laughs> too English. <laughs> okay, go on then. Yeah, but you, we, they may remember that we discussed um, Novichok, and I, I was training Novichok, for a half yeah. marathon, which I've since done. This Two hours and six minutes, very slow. Congratulations. Um, and I thought, well, running can... Based on that, I thought well, running can be dangerous. And then in the news, I don't know whether you saw the London Marathon was a few weeks ago. It was hot. It was really hot and a guy died. Right. Did you see that? I didn't see that, no. A chap from, um, he was actually a contestant in MasterChef a few years ago called Matt Campbell. He's only 29 years old. Oh, I'm sorry. He died in the marathon. It's really very tragic. What happened? Well, we don't know because they haven't. Right, okay. But, you know, you could probably imagine that it's, um, it's likely to be a cardiac event. But there's no um, information available. If, if you just randomly pick, how many people run the marathon? Well, I think we're, we're, I'm going to move on to this. In a okay. I think I know where you're going with that. I'm just going to say the probability of someone dying in that many people, just of the gen pop who weren't running marathons. I wonder what the increased risk is. Yeah. And then another marathon runner died in the Belfast Marathon, which was only two, two weeks ago. Okay. So we're recording this podcast and it's early May. So this is late April. He's called Stephen Heaney. A bit older, this guy was in his 50s. So it got me thinking, like you've just been right. suggesting, is marathon running inherently dangerous? Like, dangerous? Or is it actually, would, you, would one expect? Would, if you've got 30, in the London Marathon, there's about 30,000 people. It goes over about a six-hour time period. Yeah. In that number of people, is it prob- probable that one person will die? I'm not going to answer that specific question, but someone has answered a more interesting question. Well, you could do the same as like a football game or something or something like that, you know, because that's, you know, that's, they're always very well-defined times and sizes. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. 
But anyway, because I, I was interested, I had a quick look in the literature and I found Go a on. paper published in the BMJ. The British Medical, medical Journal. journal. That's, a, that's a good journal, right? I mean, usually when people die in marathons, they have sudden cardiac death. Yeah. So it's some, it may be something congenital which only becomes apparent during vigorous exercise. Or it may just be a random cardiac event that yeah. anybody would have happened anyway. Yeah. yeah. So what they did in this paper was they looked at whether it's you, you have fewer deaths by running a marathon um, because you close roads and road accidents. <laughs> the road accidents that you would have had, you would have had more deaths so due to so the closed okay roads. if you break a few eggs for people falling dead in the marathon, if, <laughs> if, if you saved the hundreds of lives of people that would have got mowed so the, down by, by I might cars. as well read, in this study, the, the objective was to determine the risk of death associated with running in an organised race compared with the risk of death um, from dying in a motor crash that might otherwise have taken place if the roads had not been closed. So they did this study and they looked at marathons where there was at least a thousand people. It was a US based study basically. Yeah. So they just looked and then they measured outcomes and the outcomes were just you know, sudden death attributed to cardiac causes or a motor vehicle trauma. And basically what they found was the marathon looking at all of the data for marathons, you know, in the course of thirty years, they found that there were more than three million runners on 750 separate days and a, somewhere in the region of 14 million hours of exercise. In that time, there were 26 deaths. Mm -hmm. So that's about 0 0.8 per 100,000. Right. That's quite small, really. Because of the road closure, it was estimated that 46 motor vehicle fatalities were prevented. And how so many died? How many died from the so run? So this is, this is how many, yeah. if you look at statistically, how so many motor vehicles, how many... If you look statistically at how many people would die in a motor crash during the time during which yep. roads were closed, it would be 46. And how many actually died in the marathons? 26. Yeah, so 20 people are alive walking around. So statistically, around. they calculated a significant risk reduction. You actually save lives by holding marathons. And that's before you take into any of the account of health benefits of increased yeah, fitness and whatever. so That's, we can just put that one to bed we can put that one away it's done running marathons is comparatively safer than okay than other things anyway but then yeah okay but then like that's the type of data that like policymakers get hold of and they think it's and like obviously it's a fringe case obviously the most the safest thing to do would be just to close all roads in london and then you get zero fatalities in london but obviously it's you can't not do really that. very practical no <laughs> but no but that it's not about that right it's about saving eyes nick yeah 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 anyway. well, there are lots of those risk kind of things of you know people put councils put a price on the human life to decide whether or not they put up railings at a busy junction for instance Oh, for the cost of the yeah, the, the the cost of the railings is you know it's an actuarial thing. Anyway, the, these types of studies interest me. Yeah, there's another one. So just while oh. I'm on the subject, yeah, there was another one. It reminded me of in the BMJ a few years prior to that in yeah. 2003. I'll just read you the how about, title. How about something like before you enter this? How about something like mass shootings? There's like the fact that you close all the roads because the police will come in. So if I come in and shoot you in the head, right? <laughs> like then all the police will turn up and they'll close all the roads. And then all the people that would have died from the road. Are you saving lives by... Shooting by... someone in the head? Yeah. You'd have to do it in a really busy place. You'd have to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or a really risky place. Like, you'd do it somewhere on yeah. a stretch of road, like... The, yeah, I Piccadilly don't Circus or something. Well, Piccadilly Circus is probably comparatively safe. I'm thinking about a yeah. dangerous A road somewhere. Right, okay. In Hampshire or something, I don't know. Right. So, but yeah, 
we should investigate that. The soon. logic is sound. The logic is sound. <laughs> well, you can just you can easily do it. You can just make a few assumptions. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. What's the second one? So I'm going to read you the title of this other paper. Oh, this is also in the BMJ. I'm excited. And this was a Christmas paper. All right. So it's we, like fun. The, we like the it's Christmas papers. It's a fun paper. Yeah. And I may have mentioned it to you before a long time ago, but the title of the paper is Parachute Use to Prevent Death and Major Trauma Related to Gravitational Challenge. Systematic Review of Randomized Controlled Trials. <laughs> have you heard about this one? I heard this one, yeah. <laughs> it's great. So just to you guys out there, so you may or may not have heard of this, but this was kind of a fun paper, and the idea of the paper was... Everyone in medicine is obsessed with a randomized controlled control trial. trial. That's if the only want, way to prove anything. Yeah. If, it's the only way to show that a drug works because there's lots of other fa- like confounding factors, bias in the experiments, you picking different things. The so people doing the, delivering the drug. It's basically a very rigorous controlled way of doing an experiment. Some people get a bit militant about it. They're like, you know, I'm not going to believe anything unless there's a randomized controlled trial. So yeah. this, this paper was basically a put down to those people it's just funny when you read it and it's it's got study here we go so i'll just read the um the opening (laughs) the opening paragraph the parachute is used in recreational voluntary sectors and military settings to reduce the risk of orthopedic head and soft tissue injury after gravitational challenge typically in the context of jumping from an aircraft (laughs) <laughs> the perception that parachutes are a successful intervention is based largely on anecdotal evidence. <laughs> no one's ever done that. No Observational data have shown that their use is associated with morbidity and mortality due to both failure of the intervention and iatrogenic complications. That sort of man-made introduction. So what and they're it saying is you, 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 kind you of jump like... out of a, of a plane without a parachute. <laughs> and there's no one to prove that, that no one's ever Occasionally someone paper. will survive, though. So there's still, you know... There is data debate. out there. Some, there's data out there to suggest yeah. they survive. They're saying you should, you, you're, you know, no, because no one's done a randomized control trial of whether it is safe, whether you need a parachute to jump out of an airplane, yeah. then you don't, you know, then, it, then you, can't, you can't make the claim that parachutes slow you down until you've done a random, randomized and, control trial. And in the discussion it says... It's often said that doctors are interfering monsters obsessed with disease and power who will not be satisfied until they control every aspect of our lives. Open brackets, Journal of Social Sciences, comma, pick a volume, close brackets. It might be argued that the pressure exerted on individuals to use parachutes is yet another example of a natural life-enhancing experience being turned into a situation of fear and dependency. The widespread use of the parachute may just be another example of doctors' obsession with disease prevention <laughs> and their misplaced belief in unproved technology to provide effective protection against occasional adverse so events. They're taking the piss, yeah, aren't they? The well, in the, in the um, contributor, like so it. in a paper at the end, yeah. it always says who did what for the paper. Yeah, the author's this, contributions. And in this paper, and the, the, the initialisations of the authors, yeah. GSS had the original idea. JPP tried to talk him out of it. JPP did the first literature search, but GSS lost it. GSS drafted the manuscript, but JPP deleted all the best jokes. GSS (laughs) is a guarantor, and JPP says it serves him right. Bunsen, Burner, Dolly, Internal, Why do we need? Petri, Austin, Isaac, Newton, Transplanting. Oh, it wraps that wraps it up, Steve. Nick, do you know what we're doing next week? 
we're doing a live podcast. The Science Shed Live, the first one we've ever done. I'm a bit nervous. Um, Are you a bit nervous? I'm somewhat nervous. Nick and I had a bit of a brainstorming session and we were like um, uh, trying to figure out what we're going to do because we've left it to the last minute, like most things we do in life. Yeah, and we're going to have some audience participation. We've got a couple of fun things for the audience members to do. I believe it's already sold out. So Is if you're it sold listening, out? Yeah, I think is it so. really yeah, okay? Yeah. So yeah, Science Life is part of the um, Pint of Science uh, 2018, uh, which is being held. At, uh, we, we're speaking uh, in Southampton uh, on Wednesday. So we are Wednesday night, and we got a nice um, uh, program for you. Steve's going to be talking about his own research first. Yeah, well, he's going to be doing yeah. a little um, pop science thing for the punters in the exactly in the show. So I mean, enjoy that, and then we're going to join together and do a little live science share. We've got, really, we've got um, a couple of uh, science anecdotes all lined up. So come along to that. Um, if not, you can uh, probably, we'll probably try and record that and put that out as a separate podcast so you everyone gets to in, uh, hear about it. Um, and you should uh, let us know how you feel about that. Please tweet me. Uh, I'm at Steve the Chemist. And I'm at um, the Evans Lab. Just to, an update, it's yeah. not sold out yet. The 14th of May... The nanotech one is sold out. Ours is oh, currently who's speaking not of the nanotech. We've been beaten by somebody else. I hate losing. The, Everything's the, ours is called Through the Lens Beyond the Imaginable. It's on Wednesday night. It's in the Stein Garden, which is on the High Street in Southampton. You'll be able to listen to um, our podcast and also um, hear from David Johnson, who's a microscope expert at the University of Southampton. Christian Eglin, Professor Christian Eglin, he's a professor of immunology. In Oxford, and then also our very own Steve, the I'm, chemist, is going to present a talk called Can You See Inside a Bacteria? Bacterium, sorry, to be precise. Yeah. And then we'll do a little podcast later on. So please do go onto the website. You can find it at pintofscience.co.uk forward slash event forward slash through the lens. Get your tickets. They're four quid. We see none of the money. It's all reinvested back in Pint of Science. Brilliant. And we'll see you next time. Can't wait. Bye. See you guys. Bye.